Okay, let's go ahead and get back at it. Now, in terms of eschatology, one thing that we can see from Scripture when we look at the big picture of Scripture, that God is going to intervene, and in 3.15, we have a promise. In fact, this is a very far-reaching promise that God will, in fact, deal with sin, and it's a promise that God will eventually uh, bring a solution to the problem of sin. So, therefore, what we can say eschatologically, that evil is bounded, we're in the middle of God's work, so we don't see the end product. We can look back and we can see the concept that evil is bounded, and I'll use this chart to illustrate it. But after the fall, we have the beginning, at least on earth, and and at least in relationship to man and the universe, the beginning of sin. That's what we mean by evil being bounded. We have a beginning. But in the unbelieving mind, the sketch on the bottom there, the unbelieving worldview doesn't see a beginning to evil. In other words, evil is just what is. It just exists in the unbelieving worldview. There's no beginning and there's no end. It'll always be here. It has always been here. You can't change it. It's just what is. So the unbelieving worldview has no solution to the problem of evil. It's only the biblical worldview that gives us the concept that evil is bounded because it, first of all, has a beginning. And 3.15, Genesis 3.15, tells us that God is going to intervene and deal with the issue of sin. But in this context, what it's telling us is that evil is bounded in the sense that it has a beginning. God is dealing with it through history. It will be judged in a final way on the cross. And then eventually, it'll be confined in the lake of fire, and that's where eschatology comes in, in that we have all of the details of how that will take place in the future, as described by the book of Revelation. So evil is bounded, a very significant thing. And it's only the biblical worldview, it's only the Bible that gives us a solution to the problem of evil. All yearn for a solution, but none have a solution apart from what Jesus has done for us. So we can say that the creation that we live in today is an abnormal creation, and it will not be restored to normalcy until the new heavens and the new earth. It will be partially restored during the millennial kingdom, but not ultimately until the new heavens and the new earth. So evil is bounded, a very significant eschatological implication. Now the fall has a second implication with it. The image of God is damaged and eschatologically from the perspective of the fall this looks forward also as in terms of time where the image will be restored and the image is restored only in Jesus Christ. So let me kind of illustrate from what we developed when we were talking about man created in the image of God, the slide, the image of God after the fall. So we'll go down each of the categories. First of all, spirituality. We said that man has a spirit, but because of the fall, we are dead. Ephesians 2, we are dead in our trespasses and sin. But 
the beginning of the reversal or the restoration is in Christ. In Christ we have life, we have new life. We are regenerated, regenerated from the dead, and that comes in Jesus Christ. Now that'll be a process that will not be completed until even the future from our perspective. In other words, we're still living in sinful bodies, we're still susceptible to death, but we will be released from that ultimately in terms of being rid of these sinful bodies. So we battle that even spiritually today. But it's only in Christ that we have the release of death. We can speak also of immortality. The Bible speaks of mankind obviously being dead, as we just said, but it also speaks of a second death in the book of Revelation. That's eschatological. Those that never trust in Jesus Christ will experience a second death. In other words, it's an eternal separation. They're separated now, but there's the possibility of reversing that or restoring that. And if a person does not trust in Jesus Christ, then he will experience the second death. But for those in Christ, we have eternal life, not only now, but we will be forever granted eternal life. So we will have eternal life in terms of an eternal gift from God, and that speaks to immortality. So the unbeliever will continue to live, but he will live in the lake of fire that's called the second death. We mentioned that the intellect died with the fall as well. The intellect is part of the image of God, and again, trust in Jesus Christ Our minds have been regenerated, and Paul, also in Ephesians 4, exhorts the believer to renew the thinking of their minds. In other words, as we learn scripture, as we begin to walk with the Lord and implement biblical principles and rethink everything in light of the truth of scripture, our minds are renewed. So we begin that process, but it's, again, only in Christ. So from the perspective of Genesis 3, the eschatological implications take place far in the future when Christ is able to regenerate mankind, including his mind. And our volition is also affected. The fall put us in a state of rebellion. In fact, rebellion is the reason for the, for the curse and why we stand condemned. And we remain as rebellious creatures until, again, we trust in Jesus Christ And now we have the potential of responding to everything rather than in rebellion, but now we can become obedient in the power of the Holy Spirit. So the image is partially restored in that way in terms of our will, in terms of our volition. Similarly, creativity. The unbeliever has creativity. In fact, Some unbelievers have unbelievable gifts and talents, and they can use them in a very creative way in not only the arts, but just in inventing things, in terms of music, in all of these areas. The unbeliever has great potential in terms of creativity. But because we are lost and we are sinners and separated from God, we direct that creativity for our own benefit, for our own pride, for our own elevation. And we don't think beyond ourselves and any good that we creatively do is simply self-centered. But now in Christ, we can channel all that creativity 
in a new direction, in a direction that glorifies God. And we can give him credit for giving us the gifts that we have, the creativity that we have, and then in expressing them, we can glorify God. Also, also the image of God includes communication. The Bible says that let all men be liars, even though God is true. All of us are in a state of untruth. We are deceptive, and we, we speak in deception, but now in Christ we can speak the truth, speak the truth in love. So the fall of man and the image that is damaged can be restored, but it can be restored only in Christ. Now there's a third implication in terms of the fall, and in 3.15, now that verse I've already read it and spoken of it, is summarized by theologians as what's commonly referred to as the Protevangelium, that's Latin, Proto first, Evangelium, good news. This is the first announcement of good news because man is in a condition where he has experienced bad news. In other words, he's in the midst of death. And what it is, it's a promise that God will ultimately resolve the problem of evil. The enmity with the woman and the enmity between the seeds and the ultimate judgment of Satan that was effected on the cross, awaiting the sentence of being cast into the lake of fire, which the book of Revelation describes. And then we have the woman and her seed, which eventuates in a particular messianic seed who will experience the bruising of his heel, resulting in death and then resurrection. So that's the first announcement of the good news that the rest of Scripture will develop in far greater detail. So it's far-reaching looking ahead. Now we can look back and see that throughout world history, God has dealt with sin, and we're going to see examples in some of the other events of world history. We'll bring that out later on. But let's read uh, verse 15. God is speaking. This is part of the curse On the serpent, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. So there's going to be a continuous conflict between Satan and those related to him, between you and the woman. Uh, The next phrase, between your seed and her seed including those that are related to Satan. So the seed of Satan would be a reference to demonic spirits. There's going to be a continuous war, a spiritual war, an unseen war. And even though the unbelieving world may not see it, and even believers don't see it, but we know it from Scripture, there's there's a spiritual conflict that has gone on ever since the angels and Satan himself fell, and now it's going to inflict all of humanity and even the entire universe. So there's going to be a conflict between the woman. There's going to be an enmity, a war, a battle. And then notice the second half of the, the passage. He, a specific seed, a singular seed, shall bruise you, you the serpent, on the head. He will inflict a fatal wound. In other words, God is going to intervene and deal very decisively with 
Satan himself, the serpent, is simply the agent of Satan. And God is going to inflict a fatal wound. He's going to deal decisively. Now, I think that's an allusion to the cross, where sin was ultimately judged and Jesus bore the penalty. So God is dealing with evil over time. And then it also says, and you shall bruise him on his heel. He shall bruise you on the head. That was the infliction on the cross. And again, also on the cross, and you shall bruise him on the heel. I think that's also an allusion to the cross, except in terms of Jesus. Jesus is going to bear this burden of sin. He's going to be bruised. He will be damaged by it, but it's not a final damage or it's not an ultimate damage. Bruise him on the heel, somewhat cryptically, but alluding to that it's not a fatal wound, and we know from Scripture that Christ will rise from the dead. It will not be a permanent injury. So you shall bruise him. Even though it's a little cryptic, most theologians consider this the first announcement of the gospel. Now, in terms of salvation, the beginning of the resolution of sin began with Adam and Eve, and we have the basis for the whole doctrine of salvation right here in Genesis 3. You could consider 3.15 is God's decree to offer a means of solution to the problem of evil. So it's decreed that God is going to act. God is going to intervene. He's going to provide a savior. It's not clear here. But through the woman, a descendant of the woman will be that person that will in fact do the significant work that deals with the problem of evil. And in the text, we have evidence, and we know biblically that salvation is by faith and faith alone, and that would be true with Adam and Eve. That was true with Abraham. That's one of the points that Paul makes in the book of Romans. Abraham was justified by faith and faith alone. We have evidence of it. It's not clearly stated, but we know from the name that... Adam gives to his wife, he gives her a name that is an expression of his faith. God told Adam in the day that you eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, you shall surely die. And Adam experienced it and he sees it. And really, there's no hope of anything else other than this promise of 315 that there's going to be a resolution of it. So all Adam can expect apart from this promise is death. But because of the promise, Adam believes that there's going to be a resolution and there's going to be life. In other words, there's going to be a reversal of the deadness, a reversal of death. And he expresses faith by naming his wife since God promised that through her there would be a seed. So that hope is going to come as a result of the seed that comes out of the woman that individual that is going to resolve it. So in a, in a sense, he's putting his faith in this future messianic resolution to the problem of evil that'll come through the woman, through his wife. So he names her Eve. So there's faith. We also have the provision for sin. There has to be a substitute. An animal must die. And here again, God is the one that slays the animal. The animal, obviously in scripture, the sacrificial lamb is a picture 
and a foreshadowing of that messianic person that John the Baptist identifies as the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. So this death of an animal foreshadows the coming of the Messiah, the seed of the woman who will die on a cross, and he will be the substitute Man, all he can do is experience the death. He can't do anything to reverse that. He needs a substitute to take that penalty. And even in the garden, God provides an animal and he slays the animal himself. Now we have the doctrine of imputation as well. When a person trusts in Christ, righteousness is imputed to the believer. We have a picture of that in the clothes that are given to Adam and Eve. You remember they put together fig leaves, but they were inadequate. Those were man's attempt to solve the problem of evil. Fall short. Cannot do it. What we need is what Christ has done. It must come as a gift. It's by grace. It is imputed. And when God gives them the clothes, it's a picture of imputation. We see this throughout the rest of Scripture and particularly in eschatological passages where it speaks of the saints being clothed in white robes. And in those passages, those white robes are a picture of a right standing before God, a picture of salvation. So the doctrine of imputation is in the passage. And even the aspect of security of salvation is pictured when God protects the man and the woman in verse 24 of chapter 3. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the gate of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction, to guard, and this is key, to guard the way to the tree of life. Now it doesn't explain it, but I think the clear understanding here is had Adam and Eve had access to the tree of life, and had they partaken, that would have sealed them in their mortal flesh, in their sinful flesh, and they would experience eternal life in a sinful condition, in a sinful body. And I think what God is doing is casting them out so that they do not have access to the tree of life. And the angel, obviously, is guarding that access in order that man will eventually physically die for the hope of resurrection and the hope of eternal life. So we have protection here, and this speaks of the security that God provides with salvation. So we have a a lot of other areas that we could speak of in terms of what are pictured in terms of salvation, but we have it at the very beginning, right after the initial fall of mankind. So the basis of salvation is in the text as well, and that's the resolution of Genesis 3.15 that has these long-range eschatological effects. Another thing that we can mention here in terms of eschatology, we also can see that the fall is reversed, and we have a description of that reversal in the New Testament in Romans chapter 8. Let's notice the text in verse 19. Paul is alluding to the fall of man, and he's talking about the curse and the fall being reversed, beginning in verse 19. Actually, the paragraph begins in verse 18, but verse 19. 
for the anxious longing of the creation. Notice all of the creation was affected, as I've tried to bring out from Genesis 3. That's the biblical worldview. So the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly. Now, Paul is personifying the creation as if it were a person waiting and eagerly waiting. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, that's eschatological. The believer has not yet been revealed. And there are several passages that speak of us being revealed at the rapture or at the second coming when we go to be with the Lord. Right now, we are living in mortal bodies. We're living in sinful bodies. And we don't look much different than the unbeliever. We may have more joy and we might have more of a sparkle in our eyes. But but uh, there's very little difference in terms of you and I in terms of the unbelieving world. But there's going to come a day when the world will be able to see who we really are without sinful mortal bodies. That'll be a glorious time. I think that's what the illusion here is. The revealing of the sons of God is when God removes these sinful bodies and the essence of who we are in Christ will be in full view. Passage goes on, verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility. That's the fall, or that's the curse after the fall. Not of its own will. In other words, it's as a result of mankind. In other words, the the creation didn't do anything, but it was affected because this was the way that God implemented a punishment on man for the first sin. And then he gives us the reason, but because of him who subjected it. So this is a divine action. God brings judgment on the universe. God is the one that implemented this second law of thermodynamics. He subjected it to that radical change in its nature. But there's a hope in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now we have another allusion to the second law there, this slavery to corruption. In other words, you can't reverse the second law of thermodynamics. That's kind of a scientific principle that is accepted by all scientists. This is a constant. The second law cannot be reversed. The second law cannot be tampered with. It is there. It's part of the natural realm. That's why it's stated in the sense that it's... It's like in slavery, there's nothing you can do about it. But God will intervene, and the creation awaits that. Creation itself will be set free from this fixedness, if you will. It will experience what's next there into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In other words, it will be restored to at least what it was like in the original creation. And it appears from Revelation 21 and 22 that it'll even be more glorious than even the original creation. So the fall is going to be reversed. The second law of thermodynamics will be lifted. That is even future from our time. So we have an eschatological implication that uh, is developed further, even in the New Testament, and you see it in other passages as well. So that is a glorious future after a very depressing experience of death as a result of the fall of mankind. And that's the plan of God. A specific 
prophecy in relationship to the fall is the narrative concerning Cain and the curse upon Cain and really the whole passage, but specifically chapter 4, verses 12 through 15. Now God, in the early part of chapter 4, God has announced a curse on Cain and essentially makes a few short-range predictive statements in there. So we have not only long-range predictions, but God also predicts even short-range in terms of the specific people involved, and Cain is an example of that. So God uh, tells him the outcome of, of his life, essentially. Beginning in verse 9, God interrogates Cain to try to bring to his awareness his sin, but he's an example of one that doesn't respond like Adam did, and he doesn't respond in faith. But God makes a predictive statement in verse 12, when you cultivate the ground, it shall no longer yield strength to you. You shall be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, thou hast driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from thy face I shall be hidden, and I shall be a vagrant. So he recognizes that what God says is going to happen. And a wanderer on the earth, and it will come about that whoever finds me will kill me. Then verse 15, so the Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, lest anyone finding him should slay him. So that's a prophetic statement concerning Cain, isolated, specific, individual. And we don't have too much detail, but it appears that that was fulfilled in the lifetime, obviously, of Cain. Because of 3.15, we could even say that Genesis 3.15 is a summary of all the rest of world history. God, beginning with Adam and Eve and through the rest of world history, is going to take steps to reverse the effects of the fall. So that's a summary of all the world history. It will not be completed until the final event of world history which is described in the book of Revelation, obviously eschatological, at the end of the millennial kingdom, the last event of world history is the great white throne judgment, where sin will be completely dealt with. So the rest of world history is a record of God reversing the effects of the fall. And that won't be completed until the last event of world history, the great white throne judgment. So that brings us to our third major event of world history, the Genesis Flood. So let's take a look at the Flood. And I put it on a timeline deliberately because I want to emphasize the historicity of all of these events. These early events in the book of Genesis, we made a big deal about it when we were in the Foundations class, but they are all denied by the secular world. And you do not find them in the secular world history books. So I want to stress the historicity of these events. And that's what we did in the foundations, biblical foundations for all things class. So first of all, in our slide relating to implications, we see from the narrative of the flood and the events leading up to the flood, we see the corrupting effects of sin. And we're going to see 
beginning with the fall, and we're going to see cycles of sin throughout world history. And you can look at every period in Scripture, and you, you can see these cycles of sin. Let me go over these, and then I'll give you a few examples here. First of all, God does a work of grace. So everything begins with God, and he works a work of grace. And you could even say that the first work of grace is the creation itself. God did not have to create a universe. God has no needs. God is complete in himself. God has everything within the Godhead that he needs. He has no needs outside of himself. He had no need to create a universe, but he did, and we could view that as a gracious act in view of the desire to create mankind, so it was for our benefit. And then sin intervenes. Okay, God works a work of grace. Secondly, sin begins its corrupting effects shortly after God's grace. Thirdly, God patiently endures man's sin and allows it to persist, sometimes over centuries. Fourthly, sin reaches its full corruption, and mankind finds himself on the verge of oftentimes even destroying himself. So sin has its full corruption. And then the fifth in the cycle is that God intervenes to judge and save so we have judgment, but we also have grace. So God works a work of grace, and then the cycle of sin progresses again. And then we have something new, and then the cycles of sin continue. So we've seen it with Adam and, and Eve in the garden, and then we have the promise of a, a savior, a promise of a messianic person that will resolve the problem of evil, but then we see a degeneration even within the family, the corrupting effects of sin. The very first son is the very first murderer. So a very drastic effect. And then as you read through, you have genealogies of the children of Seth and the children of Cain. And then that leads up to the, the narrative of the flood. And by the time of the flood, all of humanity has corrupted itself to the point that God is going to intervene and judge. So you have God waiting patiently from the time of Adam and Eve to the period of the flood, several hundred years in there. But sin reaches its full corruption, and the flood is God intervening to judge and to save. And we see those corrupting effects. So we see these cycles throughout Scripture, and there's many examples of them. Let me just give you a couple of them, and then I'll go through these. We see that there's this degenerating process. Sin is like a cancer. It, it has its effects, sometimes slowly, but eventually it, it consumes whatever it is destroying. We see this, I'll tell you about the flood here in a moment, but let me jump a little bit ahead. We saw it during... After the, the period of uh, Joshua, remember God works in Joshua and they conquer the land. And then we have a very dark period after that. That's a cycle of sin, the period of Judges. You see all that. You also see that God establishes the nation of Israel and they have their high point under David and Solomon. But then after Solomon, the kingdom is, is split and you see a degeneration until God intervenes and the nation is brought into exile or scattered and sent into exile. 
So you see this degenerating effects of sin in different periods of time. Now, during the church age, God did a great work, and we've been able to see cycles of sin even during the church age at different periods of church history. And eschatologically, the Bible even predicts that the church ends somewhat in apostasy. So we see the effects of these cycles of sin. So the flood, let's go back to the flood. The flood, the essence of it, it's a judgment. It's judgment and salvation. So first judgment, and it's a judgment of the wicked. In other words, God is intervening to separate out that that is destroying from that that he loves. He loves man. Sin and wickedness is destroying mankind. So this flood is universal, and I make a big point in the Foundations for All Things class that flood is universal, goes contrary to the unbelieving worldview, and really there's overwhelming evidence for a universal flood. I won't go into any detail on that at this point, but it's a universal flood. All of mankind is affected, and all of the earth and there is plenty of evidence. I'll touch on it a little bit, and then we'll move on. So, judgment is the main purpose of the flood, but also there's deliverance. And the only righteous that are found, and not because of their own righteousness, but because of what God worked in them, is the family of Noah. So, his family will be delivered, but also the creation is involved. This deliverance is selective, no one is family, and it involves the animals as well. So that's the essence of the story of the flood. It's a judgment, and it's a work of salvation. In terms of its destructiveness, all of the earth, it's universal, all of the earth is involved, so the creation is involved. In fact, there's some evidence that it might have even had impact in all of the creation even outside of the earth as well. All of mankind, all air-breathing animals, and then there is the exception of Noah and his family. Now, I do an entire, actually a series of talks on the biblical evidence for the flood, and thus this title slide that I use, the Genesis flood versus historical geology, because there's a particular branch of geology that uh, we have a conflict with. It's that branch of geology that attempts to interpret the geological layers and attempts to give us a history of our Earth. And it's obviously evolutionary-based, not biblically-based. And I think the biblical account gives us the inspired and actual or real account. And in that, I deal with the biblical evidence, and I think you have to really stretch the text to see all of the compromises. The main compromise is a local flood that theologians hold to because they're unaware of all of the scientific evidence. But no secularist accepts any of that, so that's rejected anyway. But there's plenty of scientific evidence that argues for a universal flood. In fact, the evidence is overwhelming. And the case is not the lack of evidence. The case is that there's so much evidence that the unbeliever cannot see the forest for the trees. 
but uh, we don't have time to get into any of that detail other than just to kind of give you a little cartoon here to stress the importance of looking at the details of the text. The only way you can hold to anything other than a universal flood is that you have to stretch the language. So the cartoon kind of emphasizes if you stretch the language, then you're not going to get the right dimensions there. So the conclusion I come to is the exegetical details are very, very important, and you don't want to stretch the text. So a strong implication of the Genesis flood is that the flood is universal. And in terms of eschatology, when we speak of a universal flood, we're speaking of a universal judgment. And when we speak of judgment, the essence of when God judges, when he intervenes to judge, what he is doing is he is separating out that that destroys, that that is evil, from that that he wants to preserve. That's the essence of it, and that's the essence of what he's doing with the Genesis flood. Secondly, another eschatological implication is it's a picture of the future, and when you come to the New Testament, Jesus uses the Genesis flood when he's speaking of the second coming. He's speaking of the days will be like the days of Noah, And in the context, he's going to bring a judgment. It's going to be a universal judgment. So it's a picture of universal judgment. Now, we're going to look at the Noahic covenant. And the essence of it is that God is not going to bring another flood like the Genesis flood. So that's a promise. In fact, that's a covenant that God enters into. But... We know from the words of Christ and also passages like 2 Peter chapter 3, there will be a future eschatological judgment, a huge judgment upon all of the earth. It'll be universal. Rather than by water, it'll be by fire. In fact, that's what Peter describes in 2 Peter chapter 3. So it's a picture of a future ultimate judgment. And in a sense, it sets a pattern for all of the judgments that will follow. There's going to be several judgments where God intervenes in history. All of those judgments are God intervening to deal with the issue of evil. He is separating evil, and he's he's bringing different stages in world history of his dealing with evil. Every judgment of God in the Bible is God dealing with evil. So this follows from what we talked about when we were talking about the fall. Another implication, actually more than an implication, actually a description of the Noahic covenant in Genesis chapter 9. That covenant is very, very important. Even from a humanistic or a even a secular perspective, That covenant, the Noahic covenant, and the others that will follow that we'll look at later on, for example, Abrahamic, and we'll look at the Mosaic covenant, etc., those covenants are very, very unique. The covenants of the Bible are very significant. In fact, I don't think that you can have a proper understanding of eschatology without an understanding of these covenants. So I want to give you a little introduction to these covenants, and particularly we'll start with the Noahic covenant. 
They are foundational. In fact, they are a very important element. They are foundational to eschatology. So we need to understand them and understand their significance. So that's what I'd like to take a look at. So these are significant even in the secular world. This is illustrated by William F. Albright, who is considered one of the most important archaeologists of our day. And he's done a lot of not only archaeology, but studying of ancient cultures. So he's an authority and people respect anything that he would say. And notice what he says about covenants of the Bible. He says, only the Hebrews, so far as we know, made covenants with their gods or God. Now, being an unbeliever, he has a few things that we would disagree with in the statement there. First of all, the Hebrews or the Jewish people didn't enter into covenants with gods. They entered into a covenant with God. So we would uh, not speak of gods. Another thing we would disagree with is that it's not the Hebrews that made covenants with their God, but it's God who entered into covenant with the people of Israel. But his insight is tremendous. In other words, this is a significant statement in the uniqueness of the biblical covenants. In his observations, he knows of no other culture, no other peoples, no other nations that ever had covenants with their gods. This is unique. Now, we know the reason for that is because false gods are really no gods at all. In fact, they're satanic and there's no personal relationship between the gods of the nations, and there's no relationship there. But the real God is a personal God, a real person, and he enters into covenant with his people, the nation of Israel. So let's take a look at covenants. So they're very significant, they're unique, and it's important to understand their nature. So what is the concept of a covenant? The Hebrew word for covenant is berit, and I'm always reminded on one of my trips to the Ukraine, I can't remember whether I was going or coming, but I landed in uh, Heathrow Airport in London, and you usually sit around and wait for the next plane, and I happened to sit by a young woman, and we started conversation, and she introduced herself immediately. We had a great conversation because her name was Barit. That's what her parents named her. Her parents were missionaries in Africa, and actually she grew up in Africa. And with the name Barit, you could tell that there was some spiritual significance about her. So we had a great conversation. She told me the story of her youth and things that she was involved in and that sort of thing. And her name always gave her an opportunity to present the gospel, and that was the reason her parents gave her that name. But anyway, that's the word for covenant. So if you want, you're looking for a name for your children or grandchildren, there's a good biblical name, Barit. Well, a Barit is a covenant, and when you think of covenants, you need to think of them in terms of contracts. That's what they are. A covenant is the basically the biblical equivalent of what we describe in our culture as contracts. So they are legally binding contracts. 
Now, they come in different forms. They can come in the form of an agreement, and maybe two people would enter into an agreement, and they would call it a covenant or a barit. Or you might have tribes enter into what we would describe as a pact, or in the biblical text, it would be described as a covenant. It's the same thing. Or nations sometimes enter into treaties in our culture. In the Bible, you see that nations enter into treaties as well. So that is what a covenant is. It's a contract that binds individuals legally. And a major characteristic is that in all of these contracts, whether they be biblical or in our culture, they specify behavior to be complied with. That's very, very important that we know that and keep that in mind when we talk about covenants. And particularly when we speak of covenants in relationship to God. God does not need to enter into covenants with man. God doesn't have to do anything. God doesn't have to even promise anything to man. But God has been pleased to not only make promises, not only predict the future, not only give us a full-blown eschatology, but God has entered into covenant. He doesn't need to do that. But there are some reasons why he did, and they all pertain to us, not to him, because he has no need to enter into covenant. We have no claim on God. He is totally separate. He is totally holy. He is totally apart from us. And it's only by his grace that he enters into covenants. And the significance of God entering into covenant is God specifies particular behavior that he binds himself to be complied with. And what he does is he tells us ahead of time in these covenants what he's going to do, what he's going to accomplish. So covenants are actually eschatological. In other words, covenants look to the future, look to future behavior. And these covenants of the Bible, God binds himself and commits to particular things that he's going to accomplish. Now, if man has some responsibilities, then man entering into the covenant, man also binds himself legally. But that's what they are. I like to use the illustration of a mortgage. Some of you may have a mortgage, but if you have other kinds of contracts, the analogy is the same, but let's use a mortgage as an example. In a contract, a mortgage, for example, you have parties to the mortgage, and the mortgage only pertains and is only legally binding to those that are parties to the covenant, or the mortgage, rather. And in the case of a mortgage, if you have one, it is between you and the bank. So you and the bank are the parties to the covenant. You legally bind each other based on what is stated in the contract to perform certain behavior or to perform certain things. So that leads to, secondly, contracts have stipulations. In other words, you have to spell out that behavior. And in a mortgage, you have several things. You have the loan amount. In other words, how much you're borrowing, how much you the bank is giving you or obligating you to. You have an interest rate that you agree to that you will pay back that loan, that loan amount, at a certain rate. 
It'll also specify the payments, the exact amount that you are to pay, and it's usually on a monthly basis. And there might be even a statement that you can pay more if you want to. If you are late, then it stipulates fees that you have to pay for late payments. So all of these are stipulations. And it also has things relating to the bank. If you fail in your payments, it'll specify how many payments the bank will allow you to be late and how long, etc. And after that, if you do not comply, then the bank has every right to repossess your house. So those are the stipulations. Those That's the part of the performance that you agree to. So covenants are the same. They have stipulations as well. Contracts, a lot of mortgages have a term, and usually the term may be a 30-year term or a 15-year term, and that's spelled out as well. That's one of the stipulations, actually, but that's an important one because after you have fulfilled all that you have committed to, everything that you have bound yourself to legally, then after that period of time, then the bank no longer has any claims on you and you have no claims on the bank as well. And then you sign the covenant at the bottom and you sign your name and the bank official signs his name and now you have a contract and the two parties are legally bound to accomplish the behavior described in that mortgage. Covenants are identical. Parties to these covenants, there are stipulations and in some cases there are terms even Most of the ones that God enters into are long-range, sometimes eternal, and sometimes there's even a procedure to sign a covenant, not in ink, but there's a different way in some of these that we'll talk about when we get to them. So that's the concept of berits or beritim covenants. That's the concept. Now, there are two major kinds of covenants. There are what are called parity covenants. These are covenants between equals. The two parties are equal in standing or in terms of the law. They are equals. And there are several examples in Scripture of parity covenants. Let me give you some of them. For example, there are covenants between men, and we have an example in Genesis 21, 27. It's between two individuals, one of them Abraham, another one a leader in the Canaanite culture by the name of Abimelech. And the passage says the following, Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. They entered into an agreement. And it doesn't, in that verse, give you all the stipulations, but it tells you that they agreed to certain things. So there's a covenant between men. There's another example in 1 Samuel 18.3. We won't look at it, but if you want to jot that down as an example, there are several, by the way, several examples in Scripture. So as you can tell, covenants have existed for a very long time. In fact, they go all the way to the days of Noah. So covenants have been with man uh, from the very beginning. Now, there's none mentioned before the flood, but we have the Noahic covenant that we'll get to in a moment. The second example of 
covenants between equals? Is that between husband and wife in marriage? They enter into a covenant. There's only one passage that refers to marriage as a covenant, and that is Malachi 2.14, but it does use the word berit. And it goes the following, Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously. Now, he's reprimanding them for their marriages in this context. But notice, let's not get off track there. Notice the last part here. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. What's implied here is there's an equality in marriage. God established marriage on an equal footing between husband and wife. And in Malachi 2.14, he calls it a covenant. It's a mutual agreement, legally binding. And it always has been. It's only been recently that we have redefined marriage. And now you can, I suppose, if you want to marry your pet, you can do it. It's another story. Anyway, those are between equals. There's also parity covenants between tribes. And there are a few examples in the Old Testament as well. One of them, Joshua 9, 7, where it says, The men of Israel said to the Hivites, these are tribes or peoples in the Canaanite culture. This is Joshua in the conquest. So the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you are living within our land. How then shall we make a covenant with you? So they are going to enter into a covenant with a Canaanite people. And it probably involves boundaries. It may involve wells and uh, whatever. But the point being is this is a covenant between people of equal status. We also have... Examples of covenants between nations. These are all parody covenants. Deuteronomy 7.2, there's a warning not to enter into covenant with these Canaanite peoples. This is Moses warning the children of Israel not to enter into covenant with the people that they will enter into in the land of Israel. And the text says, When the Lord your God delivers them before you, and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, and show no favor to them. God is going to judge them. They are going to be under the judgment of God. But the point being, here's another example of Berit, a parody covenant. So that is a form of a covenant a parody covenant. 